I mean, I guess I learned this probably from my dad and just probably from my own experiences. You just got to be happy with what you got. You got to learn to be happy with what you got and not be wanting stuff that you don't need. You put that aside. And I'm not trying to say money's not important because money's very important. It's important for security. It's important for, for stuff your family's going to need. It's important for all that. But it's so much harder to achieve that, to achieve satisfaction regardless of the amount of money you have when you've got a mentality that I need that I'm going to watch a reality TV show and I need to have a life like they're showing me as if that was the real life. Welcome to the Millennials and Money podcast, the podcast dedicated to encourage millennials to continue to make wise decisions with their money. We find some of the best ways to learn is through stories. So each week, your host and wealth advisor, Payne Boyer, invites a millennial guest on the show to share their money story. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. And this week, we got a special guest on the show. We got another special Gen X guest. So as a millennial, I found that, you know, it's, it's wise sometimes to listen to our predecessors. As hard as it is for us to take advice from other people, we got to do it. And these guys have been there before. They've learned a lot. They've been through what we're going through. And there's a lot of stuff they can teach us. So I got a special Gen, S, Gen X guest on today, attorney at law, Michael T. Holy. Say hello, Michael. Hello, Peyton. Thank you so much for bringing me on your show. I love what you're doing. It's a pleasure to have you, man. It's a pleasure to have you. So before I allow you a chance to introduce yourself and tell some of your story, I first want to share how you and I met. Now, Michael, I got to say, you have to be one of the coolest white dudes on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> so we met in, we met in BNI, a business networking group that we were in together at one point. And... And you came and suited up. Like when you think of an attorney, you think of a suit. A lot of these attorneys that I've met have not been the suits, but you are. You are that guy, prestige suit, looking sharp every day. A lot of times you had the vest with the suit, which is just top of the line. You talk cool. You always have a smooth pitch. You made it so natural. And you're so natural to talk to. And, you know, we were just kind of we're in that group together for about two years, I think. Right. And we gave a few referrals back and forth. You always took care of a lot of my clients. You do estate planning. So it's right along with what I do. You always took care of a lot of my clients. And we've known each other for about almost three years now. I, I'm no longer in the group, but we still remain friends. You gave me one of the greatest Christmas gifts I've ever received. And, and, I, and, and the funny thing is you didn't, you didn't get the gift, but we did that white elephant. And I took the gift from you and I thought I lost. I thought I made a bad decision. I, and I tried to, I pushed, I mean, I was, I was doing it kind of smooth, but I was, I was pushing that. I was trying <laughs> to get you to take that. You were definitely marketing it well and you sold me on it. And I had some movie tickets and I traded my movie tickets for this seasoning rack. Despite, and the thing that sold me on the seasoning rack was the five years of free refills. And I thought to myself, man, these movie tickets, that's one move with me and my wife. But this seasoning rack, this is five years minimum of seasoned food. And I got to tell you, I'm still using seasoned rack today. I haven't used one refill yet. And the movies are closed. So I think you still got those tickets. I got the tickets for <laughs> sure. Well, I can't believe you haven't used that seasoning rack, man, because I'll tell you what, all you got to do is put that parsley in a little baggie and you could be selling it. <laughs> you wouldn't believe you get your free refill every week. <laughs> there you go. So it's like, hey, that's not, see, now I, there's only so much I can give advice on 
but you don't have friendly guidelines, Holy, so you're free to say whatever you want. Right, right, right. right. That's a business model advice right there. You guys go and take that. <laughs> but go ahead, Michael, introduce yourself, tell them about you, what you do for a living, a little about your firm, a little bit about yourself, and then we'll hop into the interview. All right, well, hey, my, Michael T. Holy, attorney at law, and uh, right now I run a, an estate planning law firm. It's just a solo practice, me. And uh, and honestly, I'm ahead of this pandemic thing. I've been working out of my house since 2013. And, uh, you know, it works for me. So that's what I'm going to keep doing here on out. And I, uh, I do some real estate matters. I do some business matters, but really estate planning. And then what happens to people after they die is my bread and butter. Uh, you know, and, and that, when I say after they die, I mean, in terms of probate or in terms of the trust administration or what have you. Uh, and then on the personal side, uh, I've got a, a wife and a beautiful wife, I should say. And I got three beautiful, but, but questionably behaving children <laughs> who are very small, uh, all under five. And then, uh, and I'm also a, an army reservist. Uh, I guess you could say it on the side at this point. I'm a JAG in the army. I have been for a while now. And, uh, now that's something I do, uh, in my free time what free time I have. Man, that's awesome, man. Thanks for sharing that. We'll get into more of that here in a bit. But, you know, this podcast is all about financial success and gearing towards and helping millennials continue to make wise financial decisions and build habits. You know, financial decisions, all it is is a series of habits that, that you practice and they eventually become natural to you. And I find a lot of times people's overall mindset around money and the habits they first initially get built with, they can be changed at any, t- at any point, but they, they're the cornerstones get set in place in childhood. So let's talk about your childhood, Michael. What was money like in your household? Um, and what was, your, what was it like for you growing up? Did you, what was your household like growing up? Well, uh, you know, my dad's an immigrant. He's from Austria. He came here when he was in his 20s and he just made it on his own, okay? And, and he's, I mean, he's definitely the pivotal uh, figure. My my mom, her her family is um, I mean it's kind of a lower middle class white family that's been in California for a while. Uh, nobody in her family went to college. In fact, they all they all seem to be eager to avoid it. Like her oldest brother, he went and joined the Navy at seventeen. They had kind of a you know my grandfather, he was at Pearl Harbor, had bad things happen to him, and he was a kind of an alcoholic mess thereafter. So they were they were all quick to get out of that household. My my oldest uncle, he he joined the Navy at 17. And then my my mom's older sister, she got out, got married right at 18. And my mom didn't even wait then. She got out of high school at 17. I think she cleared it out with a GED. And then she was married a year later, too, to my dad. Now, my dad's story is uh, I mean, is is an interesting one. My dad was born in 1939. Uh, in what we would now call the Czech Republic. But at that time, it was the German Reich, right? The Deutsche Society, because Hitler had taken all that area over. Um, Now, the thing is, his family wasn't even from the Czech Republic. They were Austrian, but they had been moved out there uh, because my my, my grandfather on that side, he worked in the trains, and that was like the rail station where they were operating out of. So they're out there in the Czech Republic, and, um, you know, uh, my dad's earliest memories are fleeing back to Austria, trying to get back to Austria from the Russians who were advancing, right? And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we we hear, I mean, we hear some about everything, I guess, but I mean, we hear a lot about sort of the American experience in World War II, and that's going to be the Western Front and everything like that. But you know, 
for my dad, you know, the Eastern Front was his family's experience. And he, he lost two older brothers in the war. You know, they were, of course, on the German side. Um, and uh, anyway, he came out of that. Made, they made it back to Austria. Harrowing story for the family. And, uh, and Russia occupied Austria. Uh, they, they, they left in the late 50s. But, um, but Austria was behind the Iron Curtain when my dad was growing up. So uh, throughout the whole time he was, uh, you know, a child, to say that they were poor, it's just not relatable to anything we have in America today, right? That was just a different kind of poor because there was nobody anywhere who had anything. There was one university operating in Austria when my dad was a child. My dad was the second best student in his like school class. And that was good to get him to school until 14. And then he was, he was done. Wow. Only the best guy got to go on past 14. Oh my gosh. Uh, wow. You want to talk about like a difference of opportunity or a difference of, you know what I mean? It's just, uh, so my dad uh, ended up in an apprenticeship uh, to be a machinist. He moved away from home, 14 years old. He had to go be by himself. Oh my God. You know? Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, and he had, it was this, you know, I mean, it was an experience unlike what we have today. He just, like this, how mean they were and the beatings and all, you know what I mean? That's how they got kids to like learn their <laughs> trades back in those days. Um, but you know, he, 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 he got through it. He became a, you know, he got through his apprenticeship at 18, I guess he became a, a journeyman machinist as they say. It. And then by the time he was about 21, uh, he wanted to get out of Austria. You know, uh, John F. Kennedy was in politics uh, and he was, you know, my dad had seen that on, on, on the black and white TV and he was like inspired. Uh, so he, he couldn't get out of, he couldn't get to America, but he could get to Germany. So he tried and he, uh, you know, got a visa, went and worked in Germany, but somehow it fell through. And after a year, he had to come back home and like everybody, he was from a small town, you know, in the yeah. in rural part of Austria, everybody made fun of him, you know, like, Oh yeah, big guy was going to go out and make it in the world. And he said, he's like, that just, that drove him so hard. And uh, what he ended up doing is he got a vacation visa to come to Canada. Okay. Not even a work visa or anything. And him and a buddy who were both trained machinists. They just kind of moved along from town to town in Canada, um, you know, just getting work here and there. And they were skilled and they had a, the one thing he really had going for him is he had a letter of recommendation from his, uh, you know, whoever had given him his certification as a machinist. And uh, even though it was like in German, it just carried a lot of weight because people knew that like a you know German or Austrian trained uh, tradesman was going to be at a high level of quality. So he was able to find, you know, hourly work here and there throughout Canada. They went all the way across and then they uh, they got a, a, like a permission to enter the United States, you know, again, on like a vacation status, basically. Um, and, uh, and he couldn't really find much work doing that. So they just figured, well, we'll just, you know, we'll just take our trip. We'll see where we can go. And he got down to San Francisco Bay area, uh, and their car broke down. They had this old Volkswagen bus and it just finally stopped working. It was all, all bottom was all eaten away from all the, you know, the salt on the road in Canada, driving across it in the winter. Yeah. So he's kind of stranded a little bit and he'd been saving his money. His buddy was not, was not as smart. Um, and, uh, the two of them actually got a job as like dance teachers at this place in San Francisco. Cause he knew how to do like a Viennese waltz and some other old school kind of dances. Yeah. And so, like teaching old ladies how to dance. And that went on for like a week or two, but they noticed that these guys had like one suit of clothes. 
And then they were always wearing it, you know what I mean? And, they're like, and they were like living with some guys they met at like a, a nightclub. You know, they were just crashing, they're basically couch surfing. And, uh, you know, my dad had actually, he'd been making inquiries and he'd found a lead that he could get hired at Lockheed. But he needed, you know, of course he needed a green card and he didn't know anything about what that process was. And then he had a, sort of a second stroke of incredible luck. He met somebody uh, who worked in the green card office and they were friends of the people they were staying with. And, uh, and they said, Hey, if you've got a letter, you know, you, you've got your certification that you've got like a useless, useful skill already. If you can get a letter from Lockheed that says they will hire you, I can get you that green card. And we don't even have to worry about all the paperwork. I'll make that go through. And so that, that stranger basically, you know, gave him that in incredible kindness and that got him his green card. He stayed and worked at Lockheed and his, his buddy actually got involved uh, with some guys who were trying to smuggle drugs into Mexico and then got arrested. So his, his, so his buddy kept going down. Kept going. He kept from, he came from Canada to America and he kept on going down into Mexico. Huh? Their, plan, their plan was to follow the El Camino all the way to Tierra del Fuego. That was their initial plan until the car broke down. And my dad was thinking, you know, hey, I could, I'm in America. I can work here, you know? And so, we need to hurry up and build that Canadian wall, man. We got to build that wall. I know. <laughs> you can see what happened. <laughs> the lack of security, man, the corruption in the, in the immigration office. <laughs> you know, we, we keep having this misdirection. Everyone's focused on Mexico, but it's, it's up north, man. That's the, that's the issue. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, I mean, I don't know if you can imagine, but my dad was uh, the most frugal person you could ever meet, right? Um, I mean, there was nobody who worked harder to save money than that man, right? Because he'd come over, I mean, he'd come over here with nothing. He'd saved up a few hundred bucks, you know, working in Canada, coming across. And, uh, you know, he was not going to lose his opportunity. He was not going to get sent back home again. Um, and then another really pivotal thing, well, I mean, and this was, is not so much luck, it's just an interesting coincidence. In, in the late 70s, uh, he learned about Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, Schwarzenegger was not yet, was kind of famous, but only a little bit famous as a bodybuilder. But what a lot of people don't know is that uh, Schwarzenegger was already a very wealthy man. And my dad read an article and kind of an in-depth interview with him where he described why he was a wealthy man. And when he came over uh, first from Austria to the United States, just like my dad had, uh, he got in, you know, because he was in the bodybuilding community and there was, some, you know, people were more famous people were willing to interact with him. Um, he learned about investing in real estate and investing in the stock market. And he did that very shrewdly in the 70s. And by the end of the 70s, he was already a millionaire before he even uh, won his accolades in bodybuilding, let alone before he began his uh, his movie career. And my dad read about that and he was like, my God, here's a dude from a small town just like me. My dad and Arnold Schwarzenegger have almost the same accent. You know what I mean? So he could tell this guy comes from like the same part of the country as me. And he came over here with nothing just like me. And look at this, he's a millionaire now. And so my dad got really interested in that and he started learning about investing. Um, and so every dollar he saved, he invested. And uh, it's an interesting thing. Sometimes people will invest because they want something down the road and sometimes they'll invest because they wanna have retirement or whatnot. And my dad has told me many times, he's like, I invest because I like 
having money and there's nothing else. Uh I don't want to buy anything with it. I want to have the money. I like looking at that number on the statement. And that makes me feel safe, makes me feel good. Because when he was a kid, they never had that. And his mom was not great with money anyway. Like they didn't have enough and she would spend it in the first half of the month. And then they would, they would be struggling to find food and stuff like that. And his, and dad would have to go out and they'd trade away possessions in, you know, things that they'd inherited from their parents to, to, to keep food on the table. And my dad was like, that is never going to happen to me. And so he was always a big saver and a big investor. And he passed that on to me at a very early age. Uh, and I didn't have any brothers or sisters. Because my dad was like, he didn't think he could afford more than one kid. <laughs> I know it's funny. It's funny when you think about the way someone's childhood impacts their financial decisions. Like, right? Like it's that. It's that. You, your dad liked money, not because he likes actually seeing money. That's what he said. But he liked security. He invested right. for security of knowing that I'm not going to have to go out there and look for bread on the streets. My kids aren't going to have to go go out there and they live the kind of way life I lifestyle I live. So I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be more conservative. And I have this and the pur- the purpose of this money is security. It's the peace of mind it brings me. That's that's what he's that's what he's buying with it. He's not using money, he's buying peace of mind. Right. Right. So um you know I mean growing up I was uh I was always at odds with my dad because he was, you know, I mean, like culturally did not understand youth culture, certainly in the United States at all. It could not relate to that in any way. And, and he was cheap, you know, and I never, he never wanted to buy anything. <laughs> so by the time I was uh, getting ready to go to college and my parents got divorced when I was uh, like 14. Um, and I, and I stayed with my dad, oddly, you know, usually you stay with the mom, but for me, uh, I stayed with my dad. Um, so by the time I was, you know, ready to go off to college, I mean, I really had a lot more respect for him. And, uh, um, and the, the one bad piece of advice he gave me, you know, he was very anti-military because of his experience with military growing up and losing relatives and everything, and just seeing like what war did to his area of the world. Uh, and so when I wanted to join ROTC coming out of high school, he talked me out of that, um, and, uh, and in fact, and, and this is, this was my financial, you know, my financial plan for college was to ROTC scholarship. And he said, I don't want you, I would rather give you that 40,000. It was $40,000 is what you got for ROTC in those days. He said, I will give that to you myself. I do not want you. I'm not going to have you signing up for that. And, and, uh, you know, he'd been pretty, um, hands off about like where I was going to go to school and how I was going to do it and everything like that. And he really, that was serious for him. And so I took that uh, to heart. You know, we, we, it, I think ultimately it was a, a bad advice on his part because I did join the military later and I'd only be better <laughs> off if I joined it earlier. But but nonetheless, you know what I mean? He he was coming from a good place and uh, and I did heed his advice. And so that was my, um, that was kind of my entry into college. Now, and I, I will point out that 40,000 was my, uh, that was my financing for college. And although college was cheaper then, that, uh, you know, that's probably another really, in, really impactful money situation for me, because through college and law school, um, the only outside assistance I ever got was that forty thousand dollars. So let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about yeah. well, well, first two things from yeah. what you saw your dad. I know you said you guys were at odds because he didn't want everyone spending any money. Yeah, <laughs> right. How did that impact you 
as you transition into being more independent role. And also, I know you went to Duke. You know, that's not a school you you talk you go to by accident. That that happens into with intent and and like your intention about going to an awesome school like that. You know, so talk about what what both first what what financial habits you picked up and brought along with you to Duke, and talk about the um how'd you get there? How'd you end up in Duke? Duke? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's kind of a three phases, but let me start with you know so um. I didn't, I didn't have a lot of allowance or anything as a kid. That was like one of the things where my parents were cheap. So I had like no access to money. So I wanted to get a job. And uh, when I got a job with well, the paper route at 14 was my first one. And then I kept, I had jobs continuously through high school and my parents, you know, at first it was both of them, but then it was just my dad. Um, they made me put all of my money, all of the money that I earned, I had to stay in the bank. And then if I wanted to spend something on something, you know, some of that money on something like I had to like explain it, you know what I mean? Like I had to explain what I was going to take money out for. And, uh, and I mean, so that, that, that that's why you're an attorney today. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, I mean, it was, it was a good parenting decision, but, um, you know, by the time I got to, you know, and then they, and as I got to be 17 and 18 and they saw that I was being responsible, that, that loosened up, you know, and, uh, and, and by the time I was 18, I was, you know, I was spending my money, but I had $2,000 saved up from jobs of my own by the time I, I went to college. And, uh, and I still have that 2000 today. I mean, I got a lot more, but like that, <laughs> that, that never got spent. You know what I mean? That kernel, it was the basis of everything that came later. So in college, um, you know, I mean, a lot of people are taking loans and, and a lot of people are kind of frivolous with their money. Right. Cause I, I, I think they think if they borrow it, that, I mean, I don't know, you know, the, the, the college tells you, you can borrow 40,000 a year or whatever, right? But that doesn't mean you have to borrow 40,000 a year. And that doesn't mean it's going to cost you 40,000 a year to, to live. And I was always as cheap as I could possibly be in college. I mean, to the point of, you know, like I really didn't, I didn't do as much socially as I wanted to because I didn't think I could afford it. Right. Because I was always trying to like, is and I mean, I, and I worked every year. I mean, and, and my best job was as an RA because that paid pretty decently. You get free room and board, right? So that really set me up. And then my fourth year in college, I went to uh, I went to France, uh, education abroad, and that was a real financial challenge because I had to live. You know, I mean, I had to find an apartment, all this other stuff. So I was living with four other dudes in a one bedroom apartment because I like for me, I was you know, and, and these were guys. I, you know, they had their own financial situation, but they were in a band together. So they wanted to like go and travel and do all this other stuff. So that was that their motivation. My motivation, I just wanted to be as cheap as possible. Um, but I'll tell you what happened in, in the course of those four years. I mean, I was a good high school student and my dad always pushed me to do well in school and everything. And I was good and I did well in tests and stuff, but um, I was not great. Um, but in college, I think because I was sort of in a different space headspace than most of the people in college. You know what I mean? Like I was more in charge of my own finances and I had a more, I probably had a more adult view about them. And that led me to be very successful in my studies as well. And so in college, I was an excellent, excellent student. Um, and then that's how, you know, when I'm applying to law school, I had, I had all the options. Um, but it was just, you know, once was kind of one step at a time almost, you know what I mean? And I think, I mean, almost that fourth year in France was really the, 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 the tip of it because I had to, I lived on $40 a week for all my food and my social budget, 
forty dollars a week. And uh, you probably you, you probably didn't do much dating in in France. You know what, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. I, I did. I had a girlfriend. <laughs> I did have, eventually have a girlfriend, but it was you know she lived with her parents, and like that was a financial boon because they'd have me over for <laughs> once a week. A jackpot. <laughs> so. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I, 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 yeah, I did every trick like that I could. Every every French person I met who, like, you know, sort of was interested in knowing an American, you know what I mean? I took I took every dinner invitation I could get. That's how you that's how you do it for forty dollars a week. <laughs> you got to write a book, man. Yeah. Right. 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 So anyway, that, you know, then I, I and then I applied to law school and I did well in the LSAT. I had really good grades coming out of UC Santa Barbara and uh, and I had, you know, I had a lot of options for law school and I just, I chose Duke. Um, I just, I kind of like the feel of it. It's a small law school, smaller than like Harvard or Columbia. Um, and, uh, I don't know, I think different area of the world too. You know, kind of, I hadn't been to the South in America yet. So I was, uh, I was intrigued by that. So, so let's, uh, let's go, let's go there, man. You graduate Duke law school, man. You could, you could essentially work for any firm out there at that point, you know, with a law school, uh, a lot of firms. I don't want to say anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you're, 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 uh, yeah. I mean, as long as I was a good student to do, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was a pretty good student to do. And instead you enlist in the, in the military. So, so, well, that, so that it's not, not totally true. So let, let me, let me, uh, the, the, the timeline's a little different. Okay. Uh, so I, I, I came out of Duke and, you know, I'll tell you one thing about the Duke experience is that I met people I'd never known existed before. And that was kind of the, uh, the, the guys who'd gone to like boarding schools, you know, the guys and girls who'd gone to boarding schools. And, uh, you know, at UC Santa Barbara, I mean, I, I mean, maybe those people were around, but they were small. But in, at Duke, they were a, a cohort, you know what I mean? And they knew each other. They identified each other. And like they were... Uh, they were a clique that I was not going to be part of. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it's kind of funny, but like, you know, you're, you, you go to a school like that and there's kind of the, the, you know, there's the people who've been groomed for that. And then there's kind of the, the scrappy group. You might the guys say. that got in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they got in and they're, but they, you know what I mean? Like maybe their family doesn't have anyone who's done that before or, or whatever else. So I was, uh, I was in that. <laughs> <laughs> that second, <laughs> right? I mean, there's other, there's other groups too, and then I mean, obviously, I mean, everything plays into it. I mean, race plays into that too. Um, you know, Duke being in the South, it had you know the thirty percent that every school does, and, and you know, for for Duke, that was more African American. So they had you know, you know, and I'm sure a lot of those guys were on the scrappy side of things too, right? But they had kind of a cohort together. And then, you know, I was like in the third cohort of the leftover, <laughs> yeah. I'd say. <laughs> um, you didn't make the basketball team? I didn't, no, I did not. <laughs> I, didn't make the basketball team. I didn't even go to a lot of basketball games because you had to go out and uh, camp. And although they made it easier to camp, you know, for, for if you're like an undergrad at, at Duke, you got to camp for like two weeks to get a ticket. Wow. Now, for us, it was a weekend. You had to camp a weekend and then you got in the ticket lottery. And for me, I, I did that one time, but um, then I had work to do there. You know what I mean? I wasn't. I had to watch basketball games, you know, so I was always trying to keep up with my studies. And, you know, another thing is, I mean, I'm a smart guy and, uh, you know, at UC Santa Barbara, maybe I could have fooled myself into thinking I was the smartest guy there, but at Duke, that was not no longer possible, <laughs> no longer possible to think I was, you know, even in the, even in the top 30%. I mean, there, there were a lot of dudes there who were, 
uh, very smart and, you know, become very, very successful in, in the days since, you know, I mean, uh, you know, Rodney Bullard's like the, one of my classmates is CEO of, of Chick-fil-A. Sean Trendy is, uh, I mean, like he's been on the news a hundred times for real, real clear politics. Um, I know Chris Kang was in the justice, uh, in the council's office for the Obama administration. So a bunch of these guys, you know, I mean, I see their name all the time. I'm like, Oh yeah, I knew that. I, I knew that guy. We went out to lunch once. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when I got out, okay, so I wanted to come back to the Bay Area, and it was it was the tech boom at that time. And so the hottest law firms in the country were the Silicon Valley law firms doing mergers and acquisitions in that tech boom. And that is what I wanted to do, and that's the job I got uh, initially. And so you're right to say, I mean, any law firm in the country, and, and that's uh, <laughs> and actually I did it. But I'll tell you, I worked there for a very short time before I realized it was not going to be for me. And then I transitioned, and I ended up in a, a kind of a mid-sized firm which, which would be a huge firm in Sacramento by Sacramento standards. It's been in the Silicon Valley. It's kind of the second tier of firms, about a hundred lawyer firm. They kind of did a general practice. And, and that was a good spot. I enjoyed that. But then 9-11 happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was only, you know, I'd only been working there for a year or something when 9-11 hit. And uh, I just felt like, you know, I'm sitting in an office, I'm working and there's these dudes in the fire department and everything. They're like, they're heroes, you know, they go out there, they're part of history. And I'm, you know, I mean, I'm a guy in an office and I don't know if that's really part of history, you know? So that really affected me. And I ended up taking a, a leave, which ended up being permanent from that law firm. And uh, I didn't join the military right away. I tried to become a firefighter and I spent about three years on that pursuit. And then, uh, and then I joined the military after that because then the wars in Iraq had started. And then I realized there was kind of an opportunity. So I commissioned eventually uh, in the army that way. Got it. Got it. So, so this is about, this had to be what, 2004, around 2004, 2003. Well, I actually did not commission in the U S military until 2009. So I was, uh, 2002, I left the firm. I was doing the firefighter thing for about four years, 2006. Uh, I was trying to find out how I was going to get back into the law and I started looking into the military. And then 2007, actually, during the surge, they said, hey, there's this huge demand for lieutenants and captains. And I, I thought maybe I was too old. In fact, my initial inquiries, because I was over 30, were that, you know, that's not going to be something that they're, that anybody's interested in. But uh, I read this article in the Wall Street Journal, and then I said, man, I've got to pursue this. And it actually took two more years before I got commissioned. And uh, and actually, after that, they started, it, the process became a lot faster. But um you know, they, they, they hadn't yet figured out all their avenues for getting more people into the military that they needed, but that was, yeah, ultimately it was not till 2009 that I finally joined. So there's, there's eight years in there. Yeah. 2009, that was kind of, there, there was, there had a couple of buddies who passed away in that time in the military. So there's, there's yeah. a lot of, there's a lot of action at that time. There was, there was, it's two, yeah, 2007, 2008, 2009 was a, was a high action time. And so then that, um, you know, I think initially when they started that war, they thought it was going to be over in a year. So they weren't looking to get more people in the force, right? They were just looking to like, and it took until 2007 when they had the surge. And then they realized, man, we are not making a lot of progress. And perhaps our strategy has not been successful that they were like, we need, we need to get more people in the military, or we're not going to be able to continue to support these deployments, right? Because you can't just keep deploying the same people on over and over. You need to cycle through, get people a couple of years off, right? And we've heard stories about people who, you know, go in six months off, go back for another year, you know, and I mean, those, that was not, that was not a good way to treat soldiers. So that was, uh, 
Anyway. Yeah, no, so so you enlisted as a JAG, and I'm not sure the JAG is. A lot of a lot of our listeners aren't sure the JAG is. I know it was a TV show, but what, yeah, yeah. so so what's the JAG? It's like the TV show. I mean, no. <laughs> <laughs> just like that. I mean, it's, it's more like the movie, the Tom Cruise movie, Few Good Men. Yeah, that would be a better a better indication because I mean, in the JAG TV show. I think he like flew a jet. I mean, he got to go somewhere. He like got. <laughs> And, and you know, so I mean, that's kind of silly. We don't, I mean, you know, you got it takes a very specialized level of training to be somebody who flies. <laughs> and it takes a very specialized training to be a guy who's a jag, and you don't. That's not that's not the same person. So, uh, you know, but I mean, I used to tell people when I got back. I mean, you know, I was kind of like the jag TV show, except instead of flying my own jet, I rode in somebody else's helicopter, right? And I went to where I needed to to go. When I was in Iraq in 2000 i mean i joined 2009 2010 i was in iraq so that tells you how that goes mm. um i uh, i was a prosecutor for my my unit which was a, an aviation brigade that was scattered across iraq we were basically in charge of all the aviation assets which is to say helicopters uh for the army in iraq and uh and we had them uh you know we had like a big base kind of near baghdad at an airfield called taji and then we had another six bases that were scattered around the country, but all those were my people. So when a, co a crime was committed, uh, then I had to, you know, I had to take action on it. Now, a lot of the crimes in the military are kind of low level stuff. Like the guy was late to work or this guy's kind of doing his job badly. You know, those are technically crimes in the military. Um, but we handled those with kind of paperwork, you know what I mean? So like, I didn't have to go out, but if somebody actually committed a, a crime, like they stole something or particularly any kind of sex assault or bothering, I, I broadly call it bothering the ladies. It's the most popular crime in the military, uh, you know, which can, which can take a lot of different forms. Um, you know, we had to go out and investigate it. And it's not that we don't have investigators in the military. It's just that they're, uh, they're very uneven in their quality. And if you get, we're pretty aggressive about prosecuting those kinds of cases. I know the media doesn't always portray that very uh, accurately. They'll look at the stats and say like, well, you know, the conviction rate for, for rape, you know, sexual assault is, is, is this low and it's this high in the civilian world. Well, the reason it's so low is because we, we push every case. Right. When the civilians are much, much, much pickier about what they'll take as a sex assault case. And for us, we've always had the attitude that we're going to support our soldiers who come forward and say that happened to them. But then the result is you get a lot of losing cases. That makes right? sense. That, yeah. Just to make sure I understand you. Right. So the, the, like the reason it's you every every case that gets brought up in, in, the, in the military is goes to a case. So it counts against the numbers of yeah. uh, well, I don't want to say every case goes because I'm sure there's some that don't, but we just we are, we are much more aggressive about that than uh, than the civilian side. And As I opposed to the civilian side where so much stuff is not even pursued. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they'll come and they'll say, hey, we don't have evidence to and they just don't press charges. Right. And I mean, and, and that's how it is and in the military. You know, we just kind of don't sit on that. We'll, we'll push them through and try. And uh, and then, you know, I mean, ultimately, we have to go before a. Uh, you know, I mean, we don't go through it before a jury, we go before a board, but it's just like in the, you know, in the civilian side, you know, I mean, you got to present your case and the defense tries to present a good case and uh, uh, sex assault cases are hard. I mean, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's so much about the credibility of the witness and, uh, you know, and we have a special, I mean, you know, and that's another thing. I mean, like when I did sex assault cases, we have a special category of prosecutor who comes in. I mean, and these days we even have another system beyond that, but at that, at that time, what we had is a special 
you know, some, you know, they put me in, right. I'm prosecuting this case and I've done like two court martials, right. I mean, this is new, this is new for me, but they brought in a guy who'd done hundreds of court martials, all sex assaults to consult with me. Right. So he flew in from Afghanistan. Right. And all he did the whole year long was fly around to different places and help people do these sex assault cases so that we would win. <laughs> right. Uh, we still lost our case. <laughs> well, we had two, we had two, we actually, we won one, we lost one. So I, I, I don't want to, but, um, it's, uh, you know, and when I say we lost, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I mean, winning and losing is not always a black and white kind of thing, uh, because we, we will bring charges on sex assault. And then we'll also bring charges on all these other little things. Like you can't be, you can't even step into a female's chew in Iraq. If you're male, you cannot step into a female's living space. Wow. Bites you. She's your friend. She's your boss. You cannot, you're not allowed in. So, I mean, you know, we can get them on that for sure. <laughs> you know, one of these guys was married, so we can get them on adultery, which is also a crime in the military and stuff like that. But, um, you know, but those things don't always, they, they, you know, even though they have their, you know, their misdemeanor type type offenses that max one year prison, but just like here in the States, when you prosecute a misdemeanor, it's not usually, doesn't usually convert to jail time. So, um, Anyway, I mean, I, I, the technicalities of that will go on and on. But well, that's what we, you know, as a JAG pr principal mission is is prosecuting crimes in the military. And then we also do a lot of, um, you know, we do a lot of staff work. And I don't know if that makes any sense to somebody outside the military. But, you know, a, a general, you know, a commander, there's only a few commanders in the military. I mean, you know, there's hundreds, but there's, you know, not, most people are not commanders. Even people who are like, you, know, you think of a sergeant in the movie that looks like a commander. He's that's not a that's not what we mean when we say a commander. The lowest level commander is a captain who's in charge of 100 people, and they have a lot of authority, but they really don't have an expertise in everything that it takes. So you know they've got staff officers to advise them on everything, right? They got a staff officer to advise them on intelligence. They got a staff officer to advise them on on operations. You think that I mean they're probably good at operations, but they still have a staff officer to advise them on it. Somebody to advise them on logistics, and then they got me to advise them on, you know, matters that pertain to the law and, uh, and, and to regulation and army regulation. And, uh, you know, that's usually this part of the, what they call the special staff. It's, you know, kind of a group that the commanders keep pretty close. So that's a lot of our work is doing that. We're advising commanders on everything they do and making sure they're following the rules of the military. So that's kind right. of, that's kind of the day to day when you're not. Yeah. Okay. okay. That's right. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, if you just think about it, you know, I mean, like if you were worried about what the military is going to do when there's an insurrection in the Capitol, I mean, that's, you know, the, all those commanders are looking to their Jack. Hey, what's the right move here? Right. So, so let's, um, let's fast forward a bit, man. Um, I know you're, you mentioned earlier, you're no longer active duty and now in the reserves. So what was, what fueled that transition rather than just staying in doing your 20 as active duty? Well, you know, first thing is I was kind of in an odd, uh, well, I mean, I guess the, the fairest thing would be to, to me, it felt like the war had more or less ended, right? And that was about 2012, 2013. And I'm, we're still in Iraq, we're still in Afghanistan, but I did not feel like there was a lot of, you know, it wasn't like I'm joining to support that cause anymore, right? Um, and the thing about the military is, I mean, at the end of it all, it is kind of just a government job, right? I mean, a lot of, a lot of the dudes... There's a surprising number of dudes, you know, they've been in the military for, for 15 years and somehow they haven't been anywhere that whole time, right? They've just been sitting at a desk at home. And, um, you know, and when, and when we're not in a wartime footing, those guys kind of take on a, a larger role. They have more power. And, uh, and, you know, that's not really the military I wanted to join. Uh, does that make sense? 
Now that makes perfect sense. Yeah. So, you know, I, and I didn't want to get out completely because, you know, emergencies happen and stuff like that. But I thought to myself, you know, somebody's got to pay all these military salaries. And what that takes is private enterprise, right? That takes people out there in the private sector making money. That's what allows all this military stuff to happen. So yeah, I, I, that, 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 as business professionals, that's our contribution to the military. That is our contribution to the military. Hey, don't, don't discount it. When I go to, you know, I go to JAG functions or something like that. I'll tell you 90% of my fellow JAGs are, they're like some kind of government employee in the day. And then they do the JAG at night. And I was like, man, that's a, I, it scares me to think how many of you salaries I'm paying with my one little job. <laughs> but I think it's important that we have people who are not in the government bureaucracy who are in the military. You know what I mean? That's important. And it's hard because it's hard to be a reservist when you work in the private sector. No, it, hey. makes a, it makes a lot of sense. You know, being a government employee and the reserves, they're not going to fight you going to do your duty. They don't. As, no, as opposed right. to guys like me and you, we're not making any money when we're gone. That's right. And it's not like, yeah, I mean, you know, Lester's not going to fight you, Yeah, but he's got to make money. (laughs) Exactly, man. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, even the bottom line is even if you have a supportive private sector employee, employer, I mean, they, they, they've got to be real, you know what I mean? And I mean, they can't necessarily just uh, be paying you when you're not there or whatever, but the government has all kinds of benefits like that. So exactly. So today you run an estate planning firm and right. I understand, you know, a lot of people don't, don't know that when you graduate from law school, you can practice any area of law you choose. And right. especially given your background as a Jay and doing kind of the, um, doing the, um, the pro- uh, prosecution. prosecution, what made you transition to pivot and say, you know what, estate planning is the one for me. This is my area of law. What, what was that decision-making process like? Well, it, you know, it was really a little bit different than all the other things because uh, my senior, my final year in, in law school, I already had my job offer. You know, I kind of knew where I was going to go. And like I said, it was, it was, you know, big Silicon Valley firm doing mergers and acquisition for tech companies at the time. And, and I thought to myself, well, I should take some courses that might be relevant to the bar exam. I'm going to take the bar exam. And there's definitely some stuff I've never even thought about. Um, so I just kind of looked and I mean, I thought, you know, intellectual property, that, that actually had relevance to my job. And then I thought estate planning, there's something that, boy, I haven't given five minutes thought to estate planning. <laughs> I know it's part of the law. It's probably on the bar exam to some extent. So uh, why don't I just get my, you know, get some basic knowledge nailed down while I'm here in law school. So that's why I took the class. Uh, but it was a, it was a cool class. It was probably my favorite class in law school. I mean, I think it was definitely my favorite class in law school. And uh, it was taught by a local practitioner. So she was a person with a solo practice like I now have. And, you know, man, she just had so many cool stories. And uh, it was just so real compared to a lot of other areas of law. You know, in, in a lot of areas of law, especially big firm law, you're like four steps removed from like real people. You know what I mean? You're like, yeah. you're up in the sky with these transactions that that no regular person could understand. And that, you know, that takes a hundred people to even move the ball. Um, and her, her practice was nothing like that. I mean, her practice was all everyday real life, you know, like real people. And I thought that was just so cool. <laughs> I guess that's the best thing to say about it, you know? And, and I started looking into the nuances of it. And I just thought to myself at the time, I'm like, well, I'm going to go be big shot in Silicon Valley. But when I'm done with that, one day, you know, I'll retire. I'll move, move to a small town. <laughs> I'll open my own little practice. I bet this would be fun. And so, you know, that's that's exactly when I, when I came to be thinking, what do I want to do 
for myself, uh, you know, in 2013, I thought of estate planning first up and I, uh, you know, I got some books and stuff. I mean, I'd done some, you do estate planning as a Jag a little bit and you do, I'd done some with the second firm I was with, but, uh, you know, my expertise was not perfect. So I, you know, I got some books and stuff and looked into it and kind of got an idea. And then I ended up actually, uh, working with a woman out in gold river who had an estate planning firm. And I sort of saw how her operation went. And then I thought, uh, you know, and I considered staying with her and, um, but we, we had a tough time working together and coming to terms like with, uh, you know, how that was, how that transition would go and everything if she, if she wanted to retire. So ultimately, um, we went our separate ways after about five months and then I opened my own place. Got it, man. So is, I, I like estate planning attorney, like you said, the other stuff here so far removed from people. Right. So this estate planning year, you're dealing with people's real life year. Is there a lot that, you know, to, to the, I'm sure other areas a lot of help people, but this is one where even to the just untrained eye knows, and this is a good guy. He's helping protect me from probate, which is a big right. deal. Or just whatever. Else. I mean, you know, like later on today, I mean, I got, I have a client who passed away this week and uh, I mean, I got to go over and meet, you know, his buddy, he picked his buddy as his trustee and me and him are going to go meet at the house and, you know, go through and look, look for what documents he's got, look for what bank information. So I'm, you know, I mean, I'm there, uh, you know, going through his life after he's gone. You know, this is a guy without kids or a wife or anything, you know, so kind of a solitary person. Uh, and, you know, who, who who's thinking about him? Who's caring? Who's taking care of him when he's gone? Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's obviously in large part, it's his buddy, but it's also me. And uh, it's interesting because I didn't know him well, right? But I know when I signed up because of the way we were doing things, I knew this was something that we would eventually do. And he he hired me with that knowledge. And that's kind of a it's a deeply personal thing that is going to, uh, it's kind of going to tr- transpire this afternoon. Um, and yeah, that's cool. There's not too many other areas where you get to do that, you know, really see people's lives that way. You know, it's, it's super personal and that's awesome, man, that you're doing that. I can't think of a better way to prep for that conversation a bit than talking with me today. So you that's right. <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, man. so let's, uh, let's talk about this. So I, I know you, Michael, so I know you're married. I know you're the father of, some, of three young children. And it sounds to me like your life's just been going and going and going since high school. So yeah. when did this happen? When did you meet a wife? When did you have kids? When did you settle down and buy a home? Talk to me about that experience. Yeah, all after, all after I left the military full time. So I, in 2013, I moved to Sacramento and, um, you know, I mean, I wanted to have, uh, I wanted to have a family, you know, I wanted to have children and I was 38 years old. Uh, so, you know, time's running out. So I, I mean, I, I was uh, on a mission in the dating world in 2013. And, uh, you know, I mean, eventually I found, uh, I found the, the right girl and, uh, we got married. Melinda is her name. Melinda, we got married in 2014 had our first kid in 2015. She, I mean, she did that. I really was just a bystander. And then uh, <laughs> the second child in 2018, the third one this year, 2020, a pandemic baby. Nice. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, I did that all recently at the same time I was building the business. And it's, it's funny because I think to myself, sometimes people talk about, you know, like the years when they've got babies in the house are like lost years. And man, I, I think I've accomplished so much in those years. That's it really, 
it, it makes me feel good. You know what I mean? Because, you know, on some hand, like my social life is not what it used to be. Right. And I mean, I think about these friends or these restaurants I used to go to. And even before the pandemic, like I'd lost, I'd lost a lot of that stuff. Right. Uh, Cause of the babies, I've, I've always got all these small kids at home and, and they, but, um, but, you know, I mean, I've grown this business. I've had, you know, I've, I've done some stuff with my hobbies on the side. I've done a, you know, I mean, I've, I've made new friends. I've made new connections. Obviously you and I have met during that time period of my life. So yeah, I don't know. It's it, it, if, if for anyone out there who's worried that your life gets derailed when you have kids, it, your life's going to change, but man, it's a, uh, it can be enriched as long as you, you keep going. Right. Exactly, man. So that's, um, so, so let's, let's talk about your family now. You know, you have you see three children all under the age of five, but you know, you, this is not new to you. This pandemic, working from home environment is not new to you. So what's it been like for you, the work-life balance of being there for your kids, being there for your wife, and maintaining the business? How's that been? And what, well, what advice can you give us all who are now thrusted into the same environment? Yeah, I mean, I got to be so organized to keep it going. You know what I mean? And uh, uh, now, I mean, you know, my kids, we are sending them out to daycare now. We weren't uh, the whole time. They were definitely home for a while. My wife, uh, she's a teacher, so she would normally, uh, she has to teach remotely, but she does that from the school uh, because their equipment's a little better. And I think actually the school prefers that because um, it helps with their union negotiations, you know, that people are like showing up and it's clear that they're there for a certain number of hours. So nowadays I actually have the house to myself, but um, yeah, I mean, you got to have a good system, man. You got to have your, here's my books. That's not my book. Well, I got to trust me. I got a book here somewhere, you know, and I mean, like every day I got to map out what I'm going to do. And then I map and I, I draw a line on the other side. I wrote what I did do, you know, and then you check against that every night and uh, you just got to stay organized. You got to stay organized. You know, this time of year is my busiest time. Everybody starts thinking about estate planning. And, uh, you know, if I kind of slow down or put my head in the sand, I mean, those clients will just go on by. Right. I mean, they'll wait a couple of weeks and then they'll get tired of waiting and, and they'll be gone. So I got to take them. I got to take them when they come and, and I got to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to, to keep all that. So it's just, it's about staying organized. And, uh, you know, I actually, I got to do my continuing legal education this, this month. I mean, you three years, you, you have three years to do it. I didn't do it till this month. So I did it all this month. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, I heard of time management, PC of the day. And it was, it was pretty good, pretty well done. And I bet but what I'll tell you is I, uh, every piece of advice she gave that I thought that was, I mean, really every piece of advice that she gave is something that I put into practice in the last four years. You know what I mean? And that made me, again, that was sort of just reaffirming that, yeah, I'm on the right track here, but man, it's about keeping yourself moving. And, and, uh, and especially, you know, when you're working for yourself, man, you gotta, you gotta have something to keep you motivated. Right. And not let you procrastinate or just slip into not doing nothing. I mean, when you're working at somebody else's firm or you're going to an office that, you know, I mean, it's kind of just kind of somebody there with a stick making sure you work. Right. But uh, working for yourself, I don't there is no you know, the only stick is held by yourself. And you uh, man, if you like watching TV or something, you could do that all day. Right. Um, and obviously, that's just going to lead to disaster. And, and that's probably why some people are maybe not suited for, for working for themselves. But, um, but man, if you can, if you can master yourself to that extent anyway, right. And it's not, there's a lot of ways to master yourself and it's a lifelong project, but I mean, if you can at least master 
what you're doing during the day, uh, you know, it's a very powerful feeling to be in charge of your own operation. Now, I will say it's been hard uh, to really spend enough time with my wife. And that's partly just because of the children and where they're at right now. I mean, the older ones, they're, uh, well, I mean, one just turned five. So I guess it was inaccurate to say I got three under five because now I, now I have a five-year-old too. But I got a five-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old. And those two are like, you know, co-conspirators in misconduct, right? I mean, they just the whole time, like looking for trouble to cause. And that's mm-hmm. the two boys. I mean, I think that's just, I mean, as far as I can tell, that's just nature. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I um, and then we got the baby girl and she's not a great sleeper. So my poor wife, you know, she's not sleeping well. I'm, I'm downstairs. I'm, I'm in charge of the little guy, the, the bigger guys when they're waking up at night. And then she's upstairs. She's taking care of the baby. So we're kind of separated in that sense. And uh, you know, it's just, it's a tough system, but we're going to get through it. You know what I mean? You just got to have faith. And, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, if I could do it again, I wish I'd met her a couple of years earlier and we would have had a little more time before we, you know, we've been so mission focused, our whole relationship, you know, mm-hmm. what I mean by mission focused is like, Hey, we're going to have the family. We're going to have the kids. We're going to get married. You know what I mean? And there was never time to relax. And, uh, I mean, I tell you, I don't think 38 is the right time to get married. And I don't think 40 is the right time to start a family, but, um, you know, it can be done. But, um, man, 28 would probably be a lot better. <laughs> I, I, I got, I got married at 28. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You did it. Perfect. Man. Yeah. Every time, yeah. No, I did it. Perfect. Did, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I'm an advisor. <laughs> that's, why you, that's why you get the podcast. That's why I'm a guest. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, man. So you said a few, two things there that I stand by that I'm super confident that I'm super glad you said is, you talked about the importance of a list, man. You got to have a list, like, because it's so easy to get off track, especially working from home. Like, wait, what am I supposed to be doing? Oh, I'm done for the day. But when you have this right. to-do list, this task, or these tasks you need to accomplish, like, it keeps you focused. You got to stay focused. It's so easy to lose focus, especially when you have young kids at home and right. you, have, you, have, you have things going on around you and you're essentially in charge of yourself. No one's holding you holding you accountable and that's the same thing he says accountability you gotta get you gotta have some kind of accountability. some people aren't meant to work for themselves because they need that accountability you gotta have the something to hold you accountable to getting things done and it could be like in some of my clients i have them like set up on award systems like if you do this then award yourself for something that you like or there's so many different ways but you gotta find the accountability system that works for you I think it really comes down to having some kind of system in place to make sure that you stay on task and you don't just lollygag, like you said. And you can you can be done with the work anytime you want. And yeah, well, it's true. And, and you know, I, I heard it, it, one thing I heard in that that thing the other day. I thought it was kind of cool, and it reminded me is, you know, if you ever if you ever in a spot where you're like, you know, you're pushing yourself, you got to work for yourself, and then you start screwing around, you start playing, you know, whatever you like to do. And you play when you're supposed to be working. That's the that's the dark playground. And uh, and the reason I call it that is because you're not really having fun when you're working when you're supposed to. But when you're playing when you're supposed to work, you're not really having fun. But you are making it so that when you when you would have otherwise been able to play, you don't have that time. You don't have that emotional release. If you don't if you don't work hard, you can't really enjoy your time away. And so that's just, that's something you got to keep in mind if you're managing your own affairs is that, you know, you got to, you got to tell yourself when you're going to work and you got to tell yourself when you're not going to work and you got to make sure you're doing the right thing at those two times, both ways. Um, 
And if you switch it around, if you're trying to work when your kids are running around and you told your wife it was going to be family time, you're not going to work well and you're not going to be happy and you're not going to be good with your family at all, right? You're going to be... And you're not gonna you're not gonna sleep. You're not gonna sleep well either, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. And on the other hand, if you're playing when you're supposed to be working, man, you're not gonna get the satisfaction out of it. You're gonna feel guilt about it. It's gonna detract from your enjoyment, and then you're gonna be so much more stressed out of work. And you you got to be mindful of that and watch that. And you write it down and you see it, and you can look at it and make that connection in your head. That's you know that's what helps you to to correct that problem. No, that's huge. I'm so glad you shared that, man, on this show because you you got to be present in what you're doing. And if you're playing out, if you hang out with the kids when time when you should be working, you're not gonna be present. You're gonna be thinking, gonna be in your head. Your head reminds me elsewhere. Your kids gonna be doing their own thing. They don't have your attention, and vice versa. If you're working in times where you said, "Hey, this is my family time," you're not gonna be present for either one. You're gonna be doing lackluster work and. You're not going to enjoy yourself in either one, either capacity. So it's important that you separate those times and remove that hat, especially working from home. It's all, it's easy to feel like I'm always at work because I work here. This is my office, but you got to create some, some boundaries and separation there. So I'm going to, I got a few more questions here before we round that. We're almost out of time here. So what, are some words of wisdom you can share with some younger guys. I have a lot of friends, a lot of listeners who are enlisted right now and they're coming up to the end of their term. And then they're at the point where they're like, Hey, I don't know what should I should do, man. Should I go out and just call it, call it a rap with military and go start pursue some kind of career. Should I, should I, um, should I just go back to school and get a degree now? Should I just reenlist? You know, I like the security here. Or should I do a combination of all three? What are some words of advice you can give someone who's in that decision-making process? Well, you know, when you don't know a person, it's hard to tell them what to do, right? But I'll tell you some things. You know, one, one thing you got to think about is, uh, you know, we put such a premium on education, and education can be a wonderful thing, but I think it's overused. And you look at how hard it is to hire a tradesman right now. I got one of my clients, they have a termite company. And man, you work for him as an applicator, you can make a hundred grand a year. That's good money. Okay. And, 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 and he can never, he can never find enough people. Never. Now, maybe that job's not the funnest job. Maybe it's not glamorous, but man, it pays the bills and it is, you know, he's even got some flexibility to it. And, you know, I understand. I, I was talking with a buddy last night. I don't understand how somebody spends a career as like a line cook at Applebee's making 1350 an hour. And they don't think to themselves, I mean, this is, this job's hard. I work hard. I show up on time. Why wouldn't you go out and become a plumber's apprentice, become a, you know, electrician's apprentice. I mean, those, all those places, they, they train on the job. If you're enlisted in the military, you know what I mean? Not an officer, you're an enlisted person, man. I think that is going to be a, something that is going to suit you because you know how to show up on time. You know how to work hard when somebody's telling you to work hard. And, uh, and it's going to give some structure to you as well. So, I mean, that would be, I think that's something to think about. I mean, the trades, there are not enough people doing it. And I don't know what it is that we've just made it into like a, like there's some shame to it, or I, I don't know what, but I mean, I'll tell you the tradesmen I know, they're not ashamed. <laughs> they're not ashamed of what yeah. they do at all. Right. I'm like you, I got some yeah. trading. I'm like, yeah. you, I got trading clients. They're making six figures easy. Yeah. I mean, they're laughing all the way to the bank. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think for young people, you got to think about that. You know, I mean, like 
yeah, yeah, you can go to school. What are you going to do? I mean, you got to have a plan when you go to school. It's got to be a cost-benefit analysis. And uh, and I don't think too many people go into school with a cost-benefit analysis. I mean, not only are you paying to go to school, but you're not making much money while you're there, if you're working at all. And uh, I mean, shoot, man, when I went to, like, I mean, I talked about it already. When I went to college, when I went to law school, I mean, I had jobs the whole time I was there. And it was probably one out of 10 of my cohorts who had jobs. I, I knew a lot of people, man, they were spending money like they were already lawyers. And, uh, and they weren't necessarily wealthy people, but they got, they got $45,000 they could borrow per year to go to Duke. And the tuition was, you know, 25,000 at that time. So that's an extra 20,000 to live on. Well, you know, there's a financial reason. There's a whole industry that was making money off lending them that extra $20,000, but exactly was to take it, you know? And when I hear somebody come talk about $200,000 in college debt, and I know tuitions are higher, but they are not that much higher. You're living like a fool if you've got $200,000 in debt. If you're going to college and you're really taking out some serious loans, man, you got to know where that money's going to come from on the back end. And if you don't, then that's a stupid move, right? I mean, would you recommend an investment that maybe makes 5% or maybe makes <laughs> that? We don't know. <laughs> yeah, of course not. You know, it's like a, it's like a Bitcoin, right? I mean, yeah, you can buy a Bitcoin and we've all heard somebody made money with a Bitcoin, but I'll be honest with you. I'm a smart guy. If I bought a Bitcoin, I do not have the programming expertise to even know if I actually owned that Bitcoin. And there's no organization out there guaranteeing that you own the Bitcoin you think you own, right? There's a, you know, they'll, somebody will send you an email with a train of numbers and you can like look on a website that claims that chain of numbers is a Bitcoin, but like that, there, there's, there's absolutely nothing on the outside telling you that. So, um, and there's no governing bodies around it. You, 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 man. When people come to me sometimes, they're like, how do I put my Bitcoins in my trust? And I'm like, man, you don't understand what a Bitcoin is. <laughs> That that's the whole point of that Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you you just unpacked straight fire, man. There's so much to dig deeper on. I wish we had time. That wasn't even what you asked. Well, you asked for advice. So <laughs> consider no. the trades and do not invest in Bitcoin or GameStop. <laughs> <laughs> hey, straight fire, man. It's it's January 2021 for those of you who are wondering what we're talking about in case right. GameStop is a thing of the past. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, obviously it will be. Yeah. Hey, man, can I talk about Robinhood for one minute? Yeah, I want to talk about Go ahead. It's, 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 you know, I, I've met, I've got several clients, they got Robinhood accounts and they think it's great because it's like a free trade and it's like investing for the people, man, that is such a scam. Let me tell you, when you, when you go with Robinhood, Robinhood, the, you are not their client. They do not make money from you. They're not trying to make money from you. They make money by tracking your trades and selling that information to the large firms that manage algorithms, right? So, so much of the large firms, they do I mean, I'm getting into it, but technical trades by the use of extraordinarily complicated computer algorithms. And what you don't realize when you make a trade at Robinhood, and it takes three seconds to process, is that 10,000 transactions happened in those three seconds. And those people at the, at the hedge funds, man, and I know, you know, like, like there's some hedge funds that, that went down, but you got to realize there's a lot of hedge funds out there, man. And I wouldn't be surprised if this whole GameStop thing was started by some of those hedge fund people with, a, a, with you know, going out after other ones. But 
those hedge fund people, man, they are, when they make a trade, like they have instant access, like it happens in microseconds. They move their buildings to address the speed of light. Let me say that again. They move their buildings so that there is less wire so that the speed of light can travel more quickly between their building and the server to get an edge. And you're sitting at home on Robinhood and you think you're like, oh, I'm a baller now, man. And then you go and your little package takes three seconds. You know, it trots along. I mean, you might as well kid up and go out there on the field for the Super Bowl and see how you do. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not kidding you, man. That is how outclassed you are and you didn't even know it. So I just, you know, and I, I don't I don't necessarily tell my clients that when they come and they tell me, you know, I mean, I'm kinder, but Man, that's you got. There's there's another piece of advice for you, man. You got to understand. You are you are. If you're buying and holding, if you're looking at fundamentals, in other words, you're looking at whether a company is going to be good. You know, you can invest. You can still invest. You can compete. If you're going to try to be a technical trader, and that means you're you're trying to manipulate the ups and downs of the market and get in on these little. Man, you are a fool. You can't play that game. <laughs> hey, on, on that note. On that note, let's pause and hear a word from our sponsors, Robinhood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I knew you should have had me decomplex before we started. <laughs> no, I'm joking, man. Hey, before we get to the last question of the podcast, Michael, you got to talk to these people about being the champ. You were the world champ for this game, man. Talk about this game and talk about being the world champ, man. Talk about that. Oh, shoot. Yeah, well, so I got, I mean, I got hobbies. We all got hobbies, right? One of my hobbies is I play, I like to play board games. And I got into a, a particular kind of odd board game called Warhammer 40K Kill Team. Warhammer 40K has been around for, you know, 30, 40 years. You paint up a little man, you put them on a board and they fight. Like, and it's a pretty complicated game and it comes out. Well, I, I mean, it, it's, it's a, that game takes three, four hours. You got to have a lot of men and all this stuff. I, I never got into it that much, but they came out with a small version of it and some of my buddies started playing and I, uh, I was kind of intrigued by it. And, uh, I, I, I was playing, I was winning and I started, uh, I even like play against myself and stuff. And so I went to a tournament in 2019 in January and I took a, uh, took second place overall, just showing up there. And, you know, I got some prizes and everything. I got to be on the internet, right. I became famous. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, I mean, that was so cool. And I said, you know what, I'm going to try this year. I'm going to see how well I can do. I'm going to go, to you know enough tournaments that I can because they got like this independent tournament circuit and it, it every time you go to a tournament they put your scores in and then they keep track of it all year long and you can get points for different sizes of tournaments and if you get enough so I thought you know what man I'm gonna just really put into this and see what I can do and uh, you know I went to a tournament in April I came in first place and uh, and then some of the guys who talk about this stuff on the internet they start talking to me right so I mean in fact some of them started talking to me after I took second place because I'd brought a you know, whatever, getting in the weeds. I brought a team that, that other people had not been winning with. There's a lot of different teams you can play with in that. You know, you didn't think of it just like, uh, you know, shoot, it was slipping my mind. But the, the big shooting games that, that are popular these days. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, you, Call you, of Duty. what's the one? Call of Duty. Well, Call of Duty is good, but there, there's one that's big in competitive gaming, and it's like you play like different, almost superhero-like characters, and then you can go in. And anyway, I can't. That's oh, I'm, I'm gonna talk about you now. Shoot, we're both of us both here, fools. <laughs> the, the dancing game, everyone did uh, Fortnite. Fortnite, yeah, that's right. Fortnite, and there's one other one that's similar to that, but Fortnite is is is, is in that family. What I was thinking of. Um, 
so, you know, like that, you know, there's different kinds of characters you can play. So I was playing one that, that had not been winning and I made it win. So then people were interviewing me and then, uh, so I started, you know, and then now the competition's getting a little stiffer because people are watching how I play and they're watching my videos and they're kind of knowing who I am. And now when I show up places, like people know me and they're like, Oh, I got, you know, so, uh, anyway, but you know, bottom line is I took another first place, uh, at, uh, there was a double tournament in, in the Southern California and I took first place on the first day and the second day I brought a new team that was doing even worse. You know, the game is evolving all the time, but it was a new bad team. And I yeah. took second place with that man. And then like that blew it up and everyone was like, Oh man, this guy's like, you know, whatever we do, he's one step ahead. Now, of course, for me, I, I brought that second team. It kind of gave me an edge because if people always see me doing the same thing, my thinking was, I gotta, I gotta be, you know, I, I, you got, you gotta have some misdirection, right? If you don't have misdirection, eventually just like, the chiefs did to the, to the bills, you know what I mean? Like they, 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 they just ran six, six DBs every play, every play, every play, no one Josh Allen wants to pass and that they haven't really been relying on that run game. And sure enough, they ran the ball 11 times that game and six DBs shut Josh Allen down. Dude went from being an MVP candidate to, you know, really getting smashed in a game that uh, they could have been winning. So that, that that's a good example. You know, you gotta, gotta stay unpredictable. So that's what I did. And then finally the big tournament at the end of the year comes in January, January, 2020, luckily before the pandemic went to Las Vegas. And, uh, and I had a very exciting, uh, tournament experience because I lost the very first game. I lost the very first game to a famous guy who has a lot of podcasts and stuff like that. And so it was like, in that community was very widely televised. I'm like me, I went out first game out of the tournament. Right. But it was not necessarily, it's not single elimination from the start. There's like, just like a regular, there's like a season in the beginning of the tournament days, the season. And then you have the playoffs at the end. I managed to win all my other games by large margins, squeaked back into the playoffs, beat the dude who beat me in the first round of the playoffs. And then I won two more games and took, took the championship. And then that gave me not only the championship for that tournament, but the championship for the year. So now it was a man, it was a cool experience. And it taught me a lot about, well, I mean, it taught and also sort of reinforced a lot of what I do about, you know, strategic thinking. And you got to always sort of be looking at the details and looking for an edge. And, you know, I mean, some of that comes into my law practice as well, but uh, there you go. The world champ, my man, the world, the world champ. Hey man, that's it. You know, you got to take it when you can, right? Cause I mean, I'm a world champion, a very tiny yeah. thing, but you know what? 2019, nobody can take that away from me. <laughs> That's right. You're, you're in the history book somewhere, man. You're in there it's somewhere. Right, man. It's a footnote, but I'll take it. Uh, so let's get to the last question of the podcast, man. The word financial success. You know, it means different things, different people. It means different yeah. things to the same people at different times, man. It probably meant something different to you when you were growing up with your dad than what it means to you when you were in the military to what it means to you today. So today, 2021, what does the word financial success mean to you? I don't want to think from a dollar amount, but from a quality of life, what does it look like well, for you? You know, I'll tell you, I guess I got a lot of clients who struggle financially, but they have a lot of stuff, you know, they have silly stuff. Um, and I can't tell you, I mean, I, I mean, I just remember one couple months ago, you know, a guy got 70 grand from an inheritance, pretty decent chunk of change. I mean, could potentially a life altering chunk of change, really. And he bought a $55,000 truck. Oh my gosh. <laughs> man, I'll tell you what. I mean, I hope he drives that truck for a long time. <laughs> I haven't heard that he's crashed it or anything, so that's good. But I mean, like, man, you can't make a more foolish decision than that with your money. I'll tell you what, what financial success 
means to me. I, I think the first step you really got to, the first step, I mean, I guess I learned this probably from my dad and just probably from my own experiences. You just got to be happy with what you got. You got to learn to be happy with what you got and not be wanting stuff that you don't need. You put that aside. And I'm not trying to say money's not important because money's very important. It's important for security. It's important for, for stuff your family's going to need. It's important for all that. But it's so much harder to achieve that, to achieve satisfaction regardless of the amount of money you have when you've got a mentality that I need, that I'm going to watch a reality TV show and I need to have a life like they're showing me as if that was a real life, you know? Um, you got to, I mean, it's, it's kind of a part of Buddhism that the, 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 the essence of pain is wanting. If you want things, you're going to be in pain. If you can let go of wanting things, then you're going to be at ease. And uh, I'm not telling you you shouldn't have anything or you shouldn't want anything, but you really, I mean, think about that because it really is the first step. Uh, if you always think you need to compete with this person or that person or have this thing or that thing, I mean, I got a lot, of, I got, I've had a number of clients who are below the poverty line and they got a nicer phone than me. And I just think to myself, I mean, yeah, it's nice to have a phone. You gotta have a phone. You probably don't need a nicer phone than me. I'm pretty sure of that. You know what I mean? And and that's an example of, you know, they couldn't have much, but but they used their want to define what they were gonna have, right? They let that want consume them. And they didn't make like a balanced decision and say, hey, how am I gonna change my life? How am I gonna fix my financial situation? They just they got they got tricked. They got tricked by all those ads. They got tricked by all that TV. They got tricked by that internet. And you got to just push that aside, man, because you're never going to have financial success until you're at peace and you're happy just being with you and, and just knowing that, you know what I mean, man, we, we could all suffer a, some kind of cataclysmic reversal tomorrow and all this stuff and all this money could just go away. I mean, it's probably not going to happen, but it could happen. And uh, and you still got to find a way to be happy. And what would make you happy in that circumstance? You got to think about that, right? Obviously, it's going to be relationships. It's going to be uh, trust. It's going to be love. Those are the things. And so you got to start with that and you got to get that squared away. And then obviously, you know, you, you at that point, when you're not constantly striving for the next thing, it's so much easier to accumulate your money. And I've never made a lot of money in my life, but I, I'm pretty wealthy middle-class. I mean, I'm not a rich person, but I'm a, I'm a high-end middle-class dude. Never made more than $110,000 a year. Uh, and, uh, and most of the years I've made much less than that, but I've never wanted much and I've always saved it away. And the bottom line is at this point, like just about any thing I want, I can have, but it took a long time to get there. And just, you know, I wasn't always waiting for the day when I'm going to be able to have that thing. I just, I became happy with that step-by-step, step, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I learned, I learned to have nothing when I was in college and law school, quite frankly, right? When I was living on such a tiny budget and I just, I learned to find happiness without having all those things. And then obviously when I deployed to Iraq and, and other operations with the military, that, that lesson is reinforced. Uh, and those were important, those were important steps for me to sort of get that, that like, you know, you're not happy because you got your $6 Starbucks. You're not happy because you got that car you thought you wanted. You're happy because of what's inside you. And it really has nothing to do with money. And if you get that happiness under control, then that happiness is not going to be working against your financial success. And you're going to be able to have that prosperity. You're going to be able to save like you need to, and you're going to be able to build that security, which is ultimately the one thing that we all need. Hey, that was an excellent answer. To summarize, you know, financial success, 
in order to have financial success, first you have to have inner happiness. Find that inner happiness and realize it's not fueled by your wants and the material things that you want to spend money on that is taken from you eventually actually achieving financial success. Right. And once you have that, you you have your your yeah I, I talk about the money purpose plan a lot and about allowing my clients spending through their values and that's what gives them that source of happiness because they're spending money on things they value and they're not wasting money on things they don't value. And when you realize you have your values and that's what gives you happiness, then you're not wasting your money and that's how you eventually achieve financial success. I think that might, I might have took a lot of packing in a nutshell. I think I did an all right job on my executive summary. I think so. No, absolutely. Well, I like, I like to say, I like to use more words, right? That's how I mean. <laughs> <laughs> okay uh hey man you've been an awesome guest i hope you guys enjoyed the show i know we went long but i know it's straight fire too so if right. you guys ever want to talk to michael t holy about doing some estate planning and what it, what it means to own the trust and to have your assets protected y'all leave some contact information for him in the show notes otherwise you guys have a great day and a blessed week thanks for being on take it easy Congratulations, guys. You've officially made it to the disclosure portion of the show. I'm an investment advisor representative of securities offered through Bertha Fisher & Company, Financial Services, Inc., BFCFS member FINRA-SIPC. Holmes Financial is independent of BFCFS. Thanks, and have a blessed week.